Welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast co-hosted by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, which befell companies because they weren't looking at the right clues, had their collective heads in the sand, or did not expect the unexpected. If you want to know how to prepare for and avoid disasters from the compliance perspective, this podcast series is the podcast series for you. Survive and thrive. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, welcoming you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast where we unpack compliance crisis and disasters and walk you through all the red flags which appeared and give you lessons going forward as well. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Courtney Nordrum. I'm Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe Corporation based in Minnesota. Uh, This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, really discussing unpleasant situations that companies get themselves into because they weren't looking at the right clues, they had their heads in the sand, or they hadn't yet figured out how to expect the unexpected. Today's episode is about effective training, and more importantly, how to avoid compliance training fatigue. So Courtney, you're in your office and you see that the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has dropped its mask mandate and social distancing guidelines. You get an email from your CEO saying he wants plans to return to the office from each department head in one week. Uh, In the middle of all this, you're evaluating your compliance training program, which for the past year has been virtual and remote, and you push that to the back burner to get ready for the day you return to the office in Minnesota. One day into that project, you get another email from your CEO who says, he wants compliance training to be updated for return to work. And by the way, Courtney, make it more interesting and relevant. So what can you do? What do you do? Do you call HR? Do you ask if there've been any training evaluations? Turns out there haven't been any, so you don't know where this kind of interesting comment from your CEO came from because he's really never commented upon your compliance training before. What are some of the steps you would take at this point? So um, this is less hypothetical and more real life because this is literally happening right now in my life, in my job. minus the CEO saying my compliance training is boring and terrible. Um, So I'm gonna break it down in a couple of ways. First of all, there are two reasons that we do training. And and one is for the DOJ and it's to prevent wrongdoing. And that is the pure reason to do training. The other reason we do training is some contract says we have to. And we we rarely talk about that aspect, but a a chunk of the training that we do each year in all of our companies is because some customer, some client, some contract said we needed to train on XYZ. So we train on XYZ. That means that we have two goals when we're training, to gain understanding. And so for our workforce to gain an understanding of what we're trying to teach them about or checking the box. So for purposes of our discussion, I'm gonna go with the 
gaining an understanding piece, um, knowing that checking the box doesn't do anything ex except make those who put it in the contract happy so they can then check a box. Um, the, the purpose of training from its pure form is to teach people what they need to know. For the return to work issues, so as someone who's been running a lot of COVID response for the last 14 months, there are really a lot of opportunities, I think, to train and retrain employees as we go back to work. So many jurisdictions, and when I say jurisdictions, I mean cities, counties, states, provinces, countries, et cetera, have implemented required training before you reopen an office. And that training has to be about your COVID practices, controls, protocols. This is also a good time to remind people of their other obligations. So when we're building training, we're already going to have to train people when they return to the office. We know that it's required. We're going to have to prove it. In some states, the training logs have to be very particular. So when we're going to build a training, the first step is that it needs to be intentional. So the DOJ, the states, any jurisdiction, county, public health, whomever is asking you to do the training is going to tell you what they want you to train on, but they're not necessarily going to tell you how to train. So it's really on us as the compliance folks to be intentional in how we train people. It has to be a decision. We can't just let whatever used to happen happen and keep doing that just for the sake of doing what we've always done. So for me, I always look at how do I get people in my company to understand their obligations and how do I get them to make good choices? Part of that is them understanding what I consider to be good choices but for the most part, good choices is a, a pretty universal concept. So when you break it down and, and get it to a base elements, we want to create a training that tells people what they need to do, when they need to do it, and how they need to do it. And that's where I'm gonna start with any training program, return to work, compliance, ethics, anything. How do you think about who needs what training? That is a really good question. And we know that our population is all not the same. One of the things you want to think about is risk ranking by job duty. Train people on, on what they need to know to do their jobs. So for me, I'm looking at my workforce and I'm saying, we have manufacturing and frontline workers. We have sales, we have an outside sales team. Leaders, managers, people who can approve invoices and, and costs and budgets, employees who travel, procurement, and then gatekeepers. And so I look at all of these different pieces and I say, what are the highest risks for all of these areas? And then I determine who needs what training. I am a big proponent of do not overtrain people train people on what they need to know and don't throw in extra training just to be safe because what you end up doing is diluting your message across all of it. Nobody wants to sit for eight hours and listen to training that does not apply to them or their job. So when I risk rank my workforce, I come up with 
you know, high risk. Salespeople, always high risk. We're gonna have gatekeepers, high risk, and also need to know some more specifics about what it means to be a gatekeeper. Employees who travel, maybe not as high risk as the sales folks always, but they have a specific set of knowledge that they also need. Uh, we need to impart on them as far as travel and what's okay. And so we break it down into chunks. And a lot of the times we end up with a Venn diagram where you know, 80% of the people get 80% of the training because they touch so much of the organization. But we try to target based on risk and how it relates to your job. In terms of gatekeepers, how do you think through a gatekeeper? Do they get a really intensive deep dive? Is it a, sort of a continuing dialogue of what they need to do, coming back to you, you further refining it or giving it to them, or they, as they are the most important? How do you think through gatekeeper training, Courtney? So for gatekeepers, we do uh, an intensive deep dive on the areas that we find to be the highest risk. So we're looking at invoice review, red flags, fraud, anti-bribery, anti-corruption, those areas. We give them a, a longer training session initially, and then we follow up more. We also provide them just-in-time training, which I'm a big proponent of checklists, decision trees, flow charts, anything that someone can have at their desk and reference so they don't have to keep everything in their head. I've said it before and I'll say it forever. Doctors, airline pilots, everybody who does something that they have to get right the first time has a checklist. So we should provide checklists to our gatekeepers, to our managers, to make sure that they're looking for the right things and doing them every single time. Training should also be focused. So I'm going to give them information for their role and not information that they don't need that might be extraneous. So part of this scenario was you returning to the office and recognizing that over the past year you have not been able to do live in-person training. How do you think through which employees are going to need that certainly in 2021 but perhaps how do you think through that on a go forward basis? So I'm a proponent that everybody benefits from live training. Human interaction is important. I think even with video or with the interacting and interactive training modules you get through online courses, they're good, but they're not the same as listening to a human in person. They're not the same as reading body language and being really engaged and, and having someone capture your attention in person. That being said, live training is cumbersome and it's resource intensive. And if you've got thousands of people in your organization, it is not practical to train them all live. So then we break it down. Risk, reward, right? I'm gonna train the board live every single year because they need live training. I wanna look in all of their faces and make sure they understand me. I'm going to tell them to hold me accountable <laughs> and I'm gonna walk them through the risks that I see coming up for the next year. That is imperative to me to do live training with the board. Also, M&A. So when you're integrating after an acquisition or a merger, 
I think it's important to do live training at that point of the people who are new to the organization. Just because it's a way to get yourself in front of people, you get to make an impression, you get to show them that you're approachable, but you also get to show them that there's a personal element to compliance. We know that the DOJ cares a whole heck of a lot about M&A integration. And I think it's a really important point is that when you're going in and doing compliance training first round on new employees coming from an acquisition that you get in front of them live. It's also a better way to get questions. So we can ask people to reach out to us if they have questions on a training module, but it's not real-time feedback. It's not, oh, what about this and building on this? And I think that that's really important with certain populations, the board and, and new employees through acquisition particularly. Um, I also think that the more employees need to understand their responsibilities, the more likely they are to benefit from live training. So if you have a pool of resources and you can't train everyone, but you can train some, train the ones with the bigger risks and, and bigger responsibilities. For example, if you have a sales kickoff meeting, which many organizations do, ask for some time during your sales kickoff meeting to do a sales compliance training. It's gonna be built into their schedule, they're thinking sales, 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 and it's going to be part of the excitement created from that sales kickoff training. You're just part of sales kickoff. And I think that there's benefit in that as well. So it's, it's really, it depends. How much time, money, and resources do you have to do live training? And whatever you have, you have to build your program based on risk from that. I will say, however, um, Live training with the board is, is one that I'm not gonna give up because it, I think it's imperative to go into a board meeting, make eye contact with everyone and let them ask me any questions in real time. You know, that brings up a really interesting point that uh, I don't think gets enough attention in training, which is that personal interaction and where, why, Live training can be so powerful because of that, that Q&A, building that relationship, as you said, looking them in the eye, but also them looking you in the eye and really coming to know you as not just the CCO, uh, but as Courtney, the CCO. And that same sort of concept seems to me to work literally across the globe if, if you have to go on a, a long kind of training junket uh, to, to train lots of people. Has that been your experience as well? It has. So as an extrovert, I am someone who likes being with other people. I get energized by talking to people, by training, by just interacting with other humans. And I think that from a training perspective, people can feed off of that. And they can really see not only that I'm excited about the training and it's not just multiple choice, click the button, did Todd make the wrong decision? I don't want to say boring, but more prescriptive, and it's actually a conversation. I, I think it's important that people feel seen and heard and that the training apply to whomever you're training. So if I'm training in Bulgaria, I wanna make sure that I'm having a conversation that is meaningful to the Bulgarian population. 
of, of my workforce. Same with Australia, Ireland, Canada. Um, and, and I think that the humanity of training comes through so much more when you can have an in-person conversation. Also, you get my completely superfluous hand gestures, <laughs> which as I watch the videos, I realize it makes so many hand gestures. Um, but that's an extra bonus with live training with me. Let me turn the, the subject to a little bit different focus, Courtney. What are your thoughts on some of uh, the, I don't want to say generic training, but those that are perhaps lower risk, yet you want to train every year, even if as a reminder of perhaps a one hour course on business ethics, compliance, uh, or maybe six to 10, five to 10 minute training videos that you would roll out uh, monthly and give them the uh, opportunity to choose one? So the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I could be persuaded either way. So I think there are benefits and drawbacks to both. A benefit of the short burst training is that I think adults need to hear things seven times before information actually sticks in our brain. And I only needed to hear that once which is kind of ironic, but it's re repetition in small doses works for grownups. Short monthly videos would help with that repetition, would help with retention. But the back side to that, or, or the opposite side of the coin is that if they're short, you are going to have to repeat concepts to get people to remember what you're talking about. And a longer module would allow you to get into more context as well as more real world scenarios in the training. So I think there's benefits and takeaways to both. Personally, I think a combination is really, really good. So I would, um, I think I was, I was meeting with my training folks today and we were talking about uh, a 20, 25 minute course once a year and then we're gonna supplement that with two five-minute bursts throughout the year as well. And so a couple of reminders just to say, hey, keep this front of mind. And and I wanna say this was maybe insider trading or, or something like that, but it's, it's enough to get in and get the teeth of the issue to get the 20, 25 minutes. And then the little reminders keep it enough in your brain that you know that you have the obligation. But if someone has cracked the code on this training, I would love it if they would share it with us because I think that we're all just trying to find something that works and doesn't get people calling us saying they're bored to tears. Like my CEO in your hypothetical. Uh, was it a hypothetical? It was a hypothetical. Uh, we'll have to. He, I would say he has not told me he's bored with my training. He may, he may be, but he has not voiced that to me. You mentioned cracking the code. I think uh, if there's one area I universally hear compliance officers use the phrase or similar to that phrase is determining compliance training effectiveness. How have you uh, kind of tried to tackle that uh, bugbear? Oof. So um, are people making good choices? Are issues being caught? Are they being reported? Do people bring you questions, right? So it's similar to how we judge compliance effectiveness throughout the organization and throughout our program is what are people actually doing? 
what behavior are they choosing over what behavior they could choose? So it, it's hard because it's rather amorphous, particularly with an organization that's growing through acquisition because we have new chunks of employees coming in or in uh, organizations that have, you know, global reach it's it's not the same everywhere but the best ways i've found and and i'm not saying these are the best in the world are looking at what's being caught and reported and then what isn't being reported but what is being asked as far as questions are concerned when we get questions into our ethics email box it means that someone thought oh this may or may not be okay let me follow up and that's literally i want all i want people to do is when they don't know ask us and if you do know do that so if you don't remember what you're supposed to do at least you remember to ask us and to reach out and ask what you're supposed to do like it's a really low bar i do not need to train people to be lawyers i do not need to train them to be compliance experts I need them to know what to do most of the time. And when they don't know what to do, I need them to ask us. So Courtney, what are some of the key lessons learned that you have really developed over the years uh, around uh, training, ongoing communications and education for compliance? So training is about your outcome, not about your hours. It is, I, th I think we're coming on the backside of a, the bell curve in as far as the amount of time being assigned for formal compliance training. There was a whole lot of years where everybody just dumped hours upon hours on people thinking that that was what the DOJ or the SEC or, or whomever wanted. And they don't, they don't care if it's 10 minutes or 10 hours, they don't care as long as the end result is that people are making the right choice and, and acting ethically and within the bounds of the law. So don't let the amount of time a training takes influence your decision on whether that training is good or not good. I have a training that is three and a half minutes long because it gets in, it gets the point and it gets out. That's all it needs to be. It's like in high school, when you ask how long a paper needs to be, and the teacher says it just needs to be long enough to be good or as long as it needs to be and that's the exact standard you should be using it just needs to be as long as it needs to be to get the point across you also do not need to turn your workforce into people like you you are the compliance person you are the lawyers you do not need more of you everywhere we need salespeople, we need procurement folks. And so we just need them to know how to act in certain situations. We need them to know where the resources are, where they can find the answers. If I had a million compliance officers in my organization, I would go crazy. I don't need that. I need my compliance team and other people to know what choices they need to make or to come to us with those choices. And then I'm going to harp on this again, Tom, like the code of ethics, you got to use language that everyone understands. You have to use concepts people relate to. Concrete examples that your workforce is actually going to face in their day-to-day -day work. If you have to train on anti-money laundering and you don't do insurance, 
but you give everybody an insurance module for anti-money laundering, no one is going to A, pay attention, or B, retain any of that information except to think that you're tone deaf and don't understand what we actually do here. So make sure you are relating your training to your workforce. It's the next best thing to being in person. And then the real test is, uh, the proof is in the pudding. It's in the behavior. It is in how people act. It is not in making sure they can answer multiple choice questions because that tells you that they can remember it for 12 minutes. I want them to know how to act, what behavior is okay all the time. So Courtney has a rallying cry today. I have a quote from B.B. King. The beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it away from you. Not only is that a great quote, I'm a huge B.B. King fan. And that really leads me to want to ask you about one thing I haven't heard from you today is should or even can training be fun? Should or can it be entertaining? Can you create a video, an audio, a coloring book, or a something that people might actually enjoy participating in or seeing or hearing or experiencing while you're able to get the messaging you need across? Absolutely. So we have all sat in boring training. At some point in our lives, we have sat there counting how many times someone says, um, or looking to our friend and texting about lunch. And, and it does no good. It wastes everybody's time and money. Training to be effective needs to be a whole lot of things, but it needs to be engaging. And part of that is making it fun. So mandatory training is never going to be all that much fun. It's not you know, playing pool, it's not shooting darts, it's training. But if you can make it personable and if you can make it engaging and something that doesn't make people feel like they're being trained, I think that that's going to be the key. Humor is the easiest way to build bridges and relationships with people. And if you can use humor in your training, make fun of yourself a little bit as a company, as an organization. It is okay to show that you don't take, you take your job seriously, but you don't take yourself too seriously. And I think that what you do to capture attention and be engaging is only going to help build your relationships and your credibility. So your training is gonna go further because people are going to A, be engaged and actually listen to what you're saying. They're going to see that you're not stuffy and you're not corporate. <coughs> They're going to understand that you wanted to make training for them and they're gonna see that you're approachable. So the more human you can be and authentic you can be, the better it's going to be for all of your training. And, and, and I think the um, use of comedy in not only the scenarios, but some of the uh, places that do um, improv and all of that, those pieces all work together to make more engaging training. They make more, they capture attention and they're just more interesting to watch. Courtney, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. I'm Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. 
And I'm Courtney Nordrum. Join us again for our next episode of Survive and Thrive. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Do you have an idea which you think would be helpful to the compliance community? Do you have a great story to tell? If any of these are true, why don't you start a podcast and put it on the Compliance Podcast Network? I have partnered with One Stone Creative to create a end-to-end solution for you to tell your story on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and more importantly, I hope you will tell your story with your podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network.